Yes, indeed. Not sure where that came from, but uh, it's a sign of good things to come here this morning, I think. And before I begin my message, I, I want to uh, let you know that next weekend is, uh, it, it happens once every seven years, that Valentine's Day is on a Sunday. Next Sunday is Valentine's Day, and so we have decided that... Uh, it is a fitting occasion for us to take a pause and to talk next weekend about uh, love and marriage and that sort of thing. And so that's what we're going to be talking about next weekend. Um, to get the love engines warmed up, though, we have included in the bulletin 50 practical ways to say I love you to your spouse. So if you are married, or if you would like to be, you may want to check uh, that out. It might make for a better Valentine's weekend. Why are you here? Why are you here? Now by that I don't mean like, here in this service. Generally, why do you exist? What is your purpose? Now, within that question, there is an implicit, uh, uh, implicit assumption that there is some created purpose for us. Not everybody believes that. Those that would hold to uh, contemporary evolutionary theory or secularism or naturalism would, if consistent, would have to say that there actually is no purpose. There is no meaning. We are uh, uh, temporary blips on a accidental planet in an accidental universe. Your life means absolutely nothing. There is no meaning to be found in the world, in the universe. Nothing is significant. Uh, we, are, we are merely accidents. Most of us don't believe that, though, and I think it's because we inherently sense that there is something to this whole thing. There is some purpose to the universe, and if there is a purpose to the universe, then there is a purpose to my universe, to my life, to my world. And this is the great pursuit of mankind, a search for meaning, a search for significance, something that I am supposed to do. One illustration of this uh, flows from the cultural phenomenon of uh, tonight. There is a game on tonight. This is Super Bowl Sunday, as people will call it. Um, no Christians, but... Um, it's Resurrection Sunday. Let's keep that straight. That's a bigger deal. Uh, but there is a game on tonight, and I look forward to watching it, and millions others uh, will. But if there is anything in our culture that is hyped, it probably is the Super Bowl. And uh, if you've been watching television or ESPN, like I sometimes do, uh, they, they have 
studied every aspect of this game. They have analyzed every position. They've talked about every potential nuance, ad nauseum. Uh, I'm ready for the game to be done uh, at this point. So uh, big focus on the Super Bowl. It is a big-time cultural uh, event. To win the Super Bowl, to be the winning quarterback of the Super Bowl, would be for us in America, a pretty big deal. This would pretty much be the pinnacle of the American cultural experience. Uh, You would be a superhero. Everywhere you went, people would call out your name. For the rest of your life, you'd be known for winning a Super Bowl. Um, It would be, you would think, satisfying, ultimately. You would think that. But then we have people like... uh, Tom Brady, who give us a little bit of a glimpse into what it is like to win a Super Bowl. After winning his third Super Bowl, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes and said this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think blank. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. The interviewer asked, well, what's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Like the rest of us, Tom Brady cannot escape his search for his purpose. And winning the Super Bowl isn't it. And the reason is that we are not made for Super Bowls. Well, maybe it's all the other things. Well, wait, Tom Brady has all of those as well. He's got fame. He's got money. Uh, he has influence. He, uh, he dated supermodels, married one of them. And yet he says, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. We're not made for Super Bowls. We're not made for supermodels. We are made for something far greater. And this is what our passage today is so wonderfully helpful and says as clearly as any other verse in the entire Bible, why you were created. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? All right. Well, let's get into it. First Corinthians 1031. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Let me say it again. So whether you eat or or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now this verse has an immediate context here in chapter 10, and it has a universal truth. In fact, what Paul is doing here is he's taking the universal truth, the glory of God, and is applying it to the immediate context that we have been studying here in in Corinth. And as we have learned, the problem in Corinth one of many problems, was that the people were living for their own rights. They were living for their own perceived freedoms and Christian liberty issues. There was rancor and fighting and and backbiting and judgmentalism towards people that didn't agree with them. And the whole thing was just a huge, huge mess. Paul here says that Not just eating and drinking, everything is to be done to God's glory. But it does include these freedom issues. 
In fact, Paul clarifies what living to God's glory in these freedom issues looks like. Look at verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And those verses are essentially a summary statement of everything he's been saying since chapter 8, verse 1 to 11, verse 1, about how we are to be motivated. And he says here, our motivation cannot be ourselves. He says, in fact, for me, I don't do what is to my own advantage. I do what is to the advantage of the many, namely, that they may be saved. One of my favorite uh, commentators says this far better than I, so I'm just going to read what he, what he said. Here's what Gordon Feed writes. To give offense, therefore, does not so much mean to hurt someone's feelings. So we're talking about these Christian liberty issues where we're not to give offense to one another. It doesn't so much mean to hurt someone else's feelings as to behave in such a way as to prevent someone else from hearing the gospel or to alienate someone who is already a brother or sister. Hence, freedom does not mean that one does whatever one wishes with no regard for others, nor do the limits on freedom suggested here mean that another's conscience dictates conduct. To the contrary, everything is for God's glory and for the sake of the gospel, that is, for the good of all, which from Paul's point of view means that they might be saved. Eating and drinking are irrelevant. The one who insists on the right to eat and drink is thereby making it significant. They're the ones bringing it up. On the other hand, because it is irrelevant, one can use such freedom to forbear when necessary for the sake of the gospel. So that is uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 in its immediate context. It's about eating and drinking, stronger brother, weaker brother. I have given you the immediate context. My seminary professors would be proud of me. I have done what I'm supposed to do. But you know what I want to really talk to you about today? I want to talk to you about the universal truth that is in this verse. That's what I'm going to do the rest of the time here. So, again, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Let's begin by asking the question, why should we do whatever we do for the glory of God. And to answer this, I think we need to understand what glory is. If you're going to do everything to the glory of God, we better know what glory is. So the Bible talks about God's glory in two different ways. The first one is known as, uh, or I've, I've just called it his visible glory, God's visible glory. Whenever God has allowed himself to be seen by human eyes, the person who describes what that looks like always talks about it as a kind of light, like a blinding, intense light. Remember, God is a spirit. That means he is invisible. We cannot see actually God with our own, with our own eyes. God expresses himself visually, though, with a kind of light that is not him, but it is the expression of what he is like. And to the human eye, it looks like sunlight or lightning. But it's not light. It is a spiritual reality, his glory. It is dazzling. This is what 
uh, Jesus unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples see his glory and they fall down like dead men. Light, intense, powerful. This is what Moses saw on the mountain when God let his glory pass by in front of him. This is what blinded uh, Paul on the road to Damascus. This is what filled the sky when the angels uh, showed up to the shepherds. The glory of God. It is a magnificent, beautiful, uh, intense expression of a visual expression of the worth and the supremacy of God. It is, it's, it's like light, but it's not light. And Christians, someday you're going to see it. And when you see it, when we see it, it will be the most beautiful, terrifying, captivating thing that our eyes have ever seen to see the glory of God. That's not the kind of glory, though, the first Corinthians 10 is talking about. That's the second kind of glory in view here, which is the glory of God's honor, the glory of God's worth, the glory of God's supremacy. This is what is in view here. God is glorious in his inherent Worth. God is the ultimate being in the, in the universe. There is, there is nobody that is more, more, more. <laughs> Maybe that's a good way to say it. There's nobody that is more than God in any category. He is the ultimate being. And his inherent worth is infinite. So that God's glory is a kind of statement of value. A statement of worth. A statement of of honor that God has as God. So do all to the glory of God. Do all consistent with the honor that is God's as God. Here's how our church's doctrinal statement says it. The triune God is perfect, beautiful, and glorious in all of his attributes. These attributes include, but are not limited to, holiness, sovereignty, power, justice, wisdom, truth, faithfulness, mercy, goodness, and love. God's infinite worth demands that mankind ascribe ultimate glory to him. And his immeasurable value means that nothing should be honored or treasured more than God himself. That's pretty good, isn't it? Indeed. So God's visible glory, one way to look at it is this way. God's visible glory is a visualization of God's inherent glory. He is himself glorious because he is himself most worthy. Greatest. Infinitely so. That's God. So the glory of God is the worth of God. His worth is infinite, which means his glory is infinite. Maybe a way to look at it would be this way, is to think of it as a price tag. And we're all familiar with this. When you go shopping, you go to the store, you see something from a distance, and you're like, oh. So you, you begin walking towards it. You see a shirt you like, you see a tool you like, whatever it might be. And as you're getting closer to it, and as you get to it, you hold it up, you look at it, you're evaluating it. Is this something that I want? If it is something I want, how, how much am I willing to pay for it? How valuable is it? 
Well, the next thing that we do is we look for the price tag. And that price tag is a statement of worth by the person who owns it so that I can know what it's going to take for me to buy this. God's glory is like a price tag. It is a, it is a statement of worth. Only in God's case, his worth is infinite. So his glory is also infinite. Which is part of the marvel of God. And that's why, by the way, that we do not add to the glory of God. Psalm 29.1 tells us that we ascribe glory to God. We can recognize his glory. We can spread his glory. We can reflect his glory. We can praise him for his glory. But we cannot add one drop of glory to God because it is already all his. He is the glorious God. All glory to him. So what does it mean then that we are to do whatever we do to the glory of God? Well, here is part of what it means. That my ultimate purpose in what I do is to honor him. Okay? My bottom line in my life is that I want to bring honor to God. Now, the reason that this is so important is that God does what he does for his honor, for his glory. I can say that better. The reason that it's so important that we do everything we do to the glory of God is that God does everything he does to the glory of God. So that when we are doing what we're doing to the glory of God, we are joining with him in his purposes. When we are not doing what we're doing to the glory of God, we are going counter to the program. We are going against his purposes. We are going against his will. Now that might be a novel thought for you that God does what he does for his own glory. But it's taught throughout the Bible. Here's one, Isaiah 48. This is God now speaking and he says, For my namesake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you. That I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it for how shall my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. We don't have time to get into this, but if God is the ultimate and most worthy being in all the universe, then God must do what he does for his own glory. There is no one else worthy of him doing it for he is god so when paul writes in first corinthians ten thirty one that we are to do what we do to, god, to god's glory he's merely saying join with what god is doing why he created the universe in the first place and yes indeed he created the universe for his glory and since we are a part of this universe that means that he created you for his glory glory. Why do you exist? Why are you here? Why are we here? We are for him. Not for us. Created for him. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 43. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created, say it with me, 
For my glory. Why did God make us? We were made for Him. And I want you to see that verse very carefully because this is a, this is a kind of personal purpose statement. I am here for God and for His glory. Think of what Tom Brady said. Something's missing. I wish I knew. This isn't what it's all cracked up to be. Isn't that the way that the human heart feels naturally? Something's broken. Something's not quite right. You may be here today in that very condition. You've come to church. And inside, there is something that is saying to you, something's not quite right. I'm looking. I'm looking. I would submit to you, here is God's word telling you the end of your search. What you are looking for is your creator. And what you are trying to find is your purpose. And here it is. You were made for God. In fact, those two things go together. If you find, your pur- if you find why you were made, doing what you are made for is also then how we find meaning which is something that all of us want as well, meaning in life. Do what, you're do, do what you were made for, and guess what? It provides satisfaction to us. Let me give you some illustrations of how this works. Next slide. Let's, uh, let's identify each of our, uh, our pictures here. Uh, what's that in the upper left? Okay. You know what? This is a bright service. The other services have all gone, a car. And I'm like, that is not a car. I drove a car here. That is a Ferrari. Yeah. A Honda Accord is a car. That is a Ferrari. So, okay. So there's a Ferrari. And then beneath it is what? Toothbrush. Okay. And then upper right corner, fork. And then down below, shovel. Now, last night I had somebody that came to me and they said, I actually don't see the difference between what is in the upper right corner and the upper and the b- below it. That they function the same for me. So I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, but anyway, now let's, let's identify why the, each of these items were uh, made. Okay. What, what's their creative purpose? What is the purpose of a Ferrari? Possibly many purposes, but I think primarily it is designed to go fast. Okay, so when is a Ferrari then finding its purpose and its meaning? When it is hauling down the Autobahn in Germany at Mach something, right? That's a Ferrari. That's a happy Ferrari. When is a toothbrush happy? What's its purpose? Brushing teeth. That's when it's, when it's doing what it's supposed to do. That's, that's a happy, that's a happy. How about a fork? Fork is happy when it is feeding. Why are snow shovels across the eastern seaboard totally happy this morning? Because they are shoveling snow. 
Now, this is sort of basic, but when these things are doing what they were made to do, they are simultaneously finding their sense of significance. They're doing what they were designed to do. And friends, that's the point of this, uh, of this verse. You were made to bring glory to God. And you could try to do a thousand other things that you might think are going to bring that sense of significance. But until those thousand other things are done for his glory, you will perpetually be saying something's missing, something's broken. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. We were made by God for God and for his glory. Now... The human expression of this, of doing all to the glory of God, is worship. Okay? Is worship. The average churchgoer, if you say, okay, what is worship? The average churchgoer would say, it is the thing we do at church for about an hour or so. That is worship. Now, that is true. But if that is all that our worship is, it is an unbelievably small-minded definition of worship. Because again, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. So that is an all-encompassing statement. It is, it is an overarching truth that every dimension of my life and every hour of my day, by God's design, is for me to bring glory to Him. So it is much broader than most Christians think. In fact, what is not included in all? Nothing. That's why they titled this a theology for everything. Because everything is included in all. It is all to be done to God's glory. That's why we talk here about everything is theological. Everything in this universe is about God. It is made for God. It is designed for his glory. It finds its meaning doing what God created it to do. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. This whole thing is all about God and God created it to bring him glory. And it is incumbent upon us to relate everything to God and to see God in the day-to-day of life and to enjoy it all for his sake. Sin also can be understood in terms of God's glory. Sin, Sin is anything that doesn't fulfill God's created purpose for us to bring him glory. Great example of this is probably the most famous verse in the New Testament about what what sin is. Romans 3:23. Quote it with me if you can. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Have fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Have fallen short of God's intended purpose for us to bring him glory. Sin is anything that doesn't fulfill that purpose. And we know this as well. Think about this week in your life. Think of the regrets of this week. I certainly have. I have regrets from this week. 
I can think of an impatient uh, word or two. I can think of some annoyance moments that I've had where I've lacked patience. And I can think of other things I'm not prepared to share with you right now. (laughs) Just things that, on the other side of them, how do we feel? Do we feel good about them? It's like, oh, that boy, that really brought, life has meaning now. On the other side of the angry word, no, we think, I feel horrible. Why do we feel horrible? Why do we feel guilty? Why does something on the other side of sin, kind of they're going, you know, red light, something, this ain't good. It's because by design in a moral and spiritual universe, we are made to find purpose in God's glory and we suffer the consequences of it when we don't. Sin is its own punishment. We know that. So how are we restored? How does the sinner find his or her sense of purpose? And this is what salvation is. In one sense, salvation is the restoration of the made in the image of God, made for the glory of God sinner, back to what God made him or her to be. A God-glorifying person. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, say it with me, to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So when Jesus died on the cross, he, he for sure, he died bearing our guilt. He died to uh, satisfy God's wrath. But one reason he died was to restore us To what we were made for in the first place. To bring him glory. Which as sinners we can't do. Even our righteous acts are as filthy rags. The good things we do are still tainted with sin. We need a new heart. We need need new desires. We need new life. And Jesus has accomplished that through his cross and by his spirit. So that when I believe. All of a sudden now. I have this new desire. To do what I didn't want to do before. I want to bring honor to him. I am living for him now. And friend, I wonder again if this might not explain the search that you are on. That sense that something is broken, that something is missing. You're not fulfilling your purpose. You haven't found meaning in life. Might this not be kind of getting at why that is the case? You're looking, you're searching. I was reminded this week of the human heart's search for its creator. There was a man who's attended our church a few weeks, and he said, I need to talk with you. So he set up an appointment. He came to my office, and he walked in the door. His eyes were already moist. He sat down. He said, I need God in my life, and I'm hoping you can tell me how. So I told him how. Got out my piece of paper and I drew the, you know, the very simple God on this side, us on the other, chasm in between. Jesus died on the cross, 
bridge illustration. I said, this is, this is the, what it is. This is the way it is. I said, do you want to confess Jesus? He said, I absolutely do. And uh, he was in the last service, actually. And I, I went to him, up to him before the service. I said, your first service as a Christian. He goes, I know. So that's pretty cool. But... And he just came up to me last weekend and, and said that. And here we are on another weekend, which means that another version of him is likely, or many, sitting right here in this room looking for something. You're looking for God, even if you've not realized it yet. God's looking for you, too. I would encourage you to consider the message of the gospel that you can have a relationship with him if you will repent of your sins, repent of these non-God-glorifying lifestyle, believe in what Jesus did, dying on the cross, bearing your, the guilt of your sin, receive the forgiveness that's offered through Jesus, and receive eternal life that God promises to all who believe. That's what your heart's looking for. And then... Begin a lifestyle living for the glory of God. Well, still the question remains, how do I do something to the glory of God? I haven't really answered that yet. So why don't I do that to conclude my message here? How do you do something to the glory of God? Well, here's the first thing. His way. To do something to the glory of God means that you do that something the way that he wants it to be done. Well, how do I know how God wants it to be done? Well, this is why God's word is so important, because his word is his will. And we honor him when we do things the way that he wants them to be done. We don't honor him when we disobey him. Just like uh, parents, are you honored when your child, you say, son, I want you to go and do this and then take care of that, and your son doesn't go there, do this and take care of that? No, you're not honored by that, but you are honored when he does with a good attitude. (laughs) So (laughs) his word is his will. There is not much that you can come up with in the human condition that that the Bible does not address. So when we come to the Bible now, now as because I want to glorify God, I want to do it his way, I want to know what the Bible has to say about something. And the Bible, the Bible, when the Bible speaks, it's God speaking. This is the way for you to be a husband. This is what it means to be a wife. I should know I created it. This is how to live in community in a church, love one another, serve one another. This is how to be a citizen in your community. I mean, the Bible talks about all these things, and that's why this is so important. You want to honor God in everything that you do? Seek to conform your mind and your heart to God's word and live consistent with this. When I'm disobeying this, I am not honoring God. Secondly, is... His goals, okay, his goals. 
We honor God when we make what he is wanting to accomplish and to do more important than maybe what I personally, preferentially am wanting to do. We see that here even with Paul in chapter 10 when he says in verse 33 that I try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. The Apostle Paul, I'm sure, would have loved to have, you know, done this or that. But there he is off on these missionary journeys. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he wants to see God's goals accomplished. And so the way to live to God's glory is to orient your life and priorities around the things that you know God is most interested in. And to not orient your life so much around the things that maybe in a selfish sort of way, you are most interested in. Okay, so I'm living for God's glory. I'm not living for my own. I'm living for the praise of God. I'm not living for the praise of men. I am seeking uh, God's advantage. I am not seeking my own. Living for God's glory is going to go more this way. Why? Because I want to see God's uh God's work accomplished. This is Matthew 6, 33. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, this is Paul in Philippians 3. I count all things as loss compared to the knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's all over in the Bible, many, many places. And this is what a godly man or a godly woman will generally be doing, thinking about what God wants. This is what sends missionaries around the world. You may, you may wonder, why are these people doing this? Why are they going? Why would anybody do that? Well, the only reason you're going to do that is if seeing God's gospel and his will accomplished in the world is more important than me kind of sticking around here uh, with the comforts and with the family and all the rest. This is what motivates uh, the supporting of ministries. Think of all the ministries around the world that God's people support and make happen. Why do God's people do that? It's because God's people are wanting God's glory to be accomplished, which means what he wants to see. I'm saying this poorly. Back it up again. God's people want God's will accomplished. And therefore, they will personally invest themselves in the accomplishing of it. Okay, And that means financial support, that means time and energy. I mean, I just think about our church and all the volunteers and all the sacrifice. And Pete, you're involved in this and you're driving here and taking care of that. And do, Why are you doing that? For God and for his glory. We want his goals to be accomplished. And he is honored when we submit everything to his will. Third, his pleasures. His pleasures. How many of you would uh, consider eating and drinking generally pleasurable experiences? I'm with you. In fact, it's 1154. (laughs) You thinking what I'm thinking? I'm thinking about God. I don't know what you're thinking about. Yes, eating and drinking are pleasurable experiences. We love it. There's just something about, pick your favorite thing. Tastes so good. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
How do we enjoy God's good pleasures on earth to his glory? Well, here's how to do it. All holy pleasures on earth are expressions of God's glory. Now, we may not think about it that way, but we need to. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. So when I see a sunset and a beautiful sky and all the rest, by God's design, he intended that whole thing to be so like beautiful so as to express to me through my eyes something about what he is like. Now, I can look at that sunset like any atheist would look at that sunset and go, oh, look, there goes the sun. It is kind of, it's kind of pretty. It's pretty. Ah. And it stops there. Or I can enjoy music like an atheist and listen to it and hear the beautiful melody and the beautiful harmony and the beat or whatever it is that you like and just listen to it and go, that makes me feel awesome. I love that. But atheists do that, right? Pick your pleasure. That pleasure is designed by God as an expression of what he is like. So a Christian who is wanting to live to the glory of God experiences the pleasures on this good earth, not for their own sake, but for the sake of God, which can mean many things. Few of them would include giving thanks in the midst of the pleasure. So that when I'm eating the strawberry pie, I can just eat it, chew it, swallow it, think it's good, and then move on to the next piece. Or, as I am savoring the strawberry pie, I can bring a thought into my heart like, God, I am glad you made strawberries. This is so great. Thank you. Give thanks, which we're to do in all things, by the way. Give thanks for it. Have joy in it. Have joy in it. Christians ought to be the most can I say it? Sensuous? If that's the right way to say it. We ought to be more sensuous in a holy way than anybody else. I need to clarify that. <laughs> I'm not talking in the you know sort of way. <laughs> I'm talking about a recognition that God has created a sensory world in which every pleasure to be had in this world holy one, is by God's design an expression of himself. And he perfectly correlates us to the sensory world by giving us senses. I can see, I can smell, I can taste, I can touch, I can hear. And by doing that, I am bringing into my mind and my heart the glory that I am Seeing, tasting, touching, smelling. 
And it makes me happy inside, right? I'm happy as I'm experiencing this. And God made me to be sensuously inclined. Sensory, maybe is a better way to say it. Sensuously sensory. (laughs) And as we have talked about in our theology of beauty, that what I must do when I am having that, what I call wonder, beauty creates wonder within us, is to take that wonder and to take it somewhere. And where we take it is back to God. Beauty leads to wonder. Wonder should lead to worship. So that I give thanks to God for it. I praise him for it. I think about what this pleasure is telling me about God. So I look at the sky again, and it's big. And I can think God is bigger than the sky. He made this. I can look at the sun and see the, the, the arcing sunlight and all of the pretty colors and think, you know what? As beautiful as that is, God is more beautiful than it. And to take that moment and to enjoy it and savor it, not for its own sake. That's the way the world is. They worship the artist. They worship the poet. They worship the singer. They worship the athlete for their own sake, rather than seeing them as means to give God praise. So you take the happiness that the pleasure creates and you turn it into praise. And as we do that, we live in a world filled with good gifts from God. But we do not make idols of them. We do not enjoy them apart from God. We enjoy them because of God and give thanks to him. And he's honored when we do. Did you get that? That's one of my favorite subjects. Finally, his person. His person. We glorify God when we live for him, not for what he can do for us. Let me say it again. We bring him honor when we live for him, not for what he can do for us. There are people in churches today, churches are filled, many churches filled with people who are there in a way to manipulate God. They're having problems in their marriage. They're having problems with some kid. They're having some kind of issue. And they think, if I go to church, it will incline God's favor towards me. He'll see that I'm in church. And therefore, he'll do what I want him to do for me. Now, how much do we like it when people treat us that way? When you're talking with somebody and you get the little feeling that maybe they're playing you. They want something from you. You ever got that sense? What do, what do we do from that? We're like, oh. Why? Because we want people that are interested in us, not just what we can do for them. And God is the same. And he knows our hearts. We can't manipulate him. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our strength to love the ble- when we love the blessings more than the blesser then God is not honored by it here's what i can tell you friends if god never did a thing for us he would be worthy of worship so serve him for who he is not for what he can do for you 
and he will be glorified in it. So, how do we bring God glory? By doing it his way, by doing it with a view towards his goals, by enjoying his pleasures for his sake, and for him who he is. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And that's as best I can describe it. May God, may God be glorified. Let's stand together for a word of prayer.